0: Okay, so hello, Michael. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Good to be with you.
0: Good, good. Um, It's great to have you here. So, this speaker series has been focused on the shadow. And just for anyone who's joining us who might be unfamiliar with the concept, how would you describe the shadow? in your own terms?
1: Well, it's an essential part of the manifest world. The shadow uh, is as essential and as universal as the fact that night follows day. So everything that exists has a shadow. And so in psychological terms, I guess you would call that the archetypal shadow. I think that's what Jung called it. So if you, if you go at it through psychology, you get um, probably the companion would be the archetype of the deep self, which is like the universal all-knowing uh, self, the connection to the origins of life and the connection to the divine. And then, the sh- then that has to have a shadow. And so that's the archetypal shadow in um, religions and in uh, literature Um, I, I guess you would see it as the devil, um, or as the perennial bad person, um, going back to psychology, uh, because each person has a persona, each person has a shadow. And so what intrigues me most about shadow is how, wherever you have power, you have the shadow of power, wherever you have ideals, you have the shadow of those ideals, and, send, and, and then making that psychological, uh, a child has to grow up within a family, which has its own ethics and its own imagination, I guess, or, at, or in a community or society. And so certain things about the child will be not acceptable to the parents or to the community. And so those things get repressed and they become the shadow of that person. And then, so that happens early on in life. And then when it comes to being a youth, a young person, uh, that's usually when there is some manifestation of a person's shadow. Um, you know, they say that youth take risks because they think they're immortal, but that immortality has a shadow. And so uh, to be, during youth, people will often do things that otherwise would be considered dangerous or destructive. And so uh, the shadow is an active part of each individual. It's an active part of culture. And so here in American society at this time, the shadow is on display uh, 24 it, seven. The shadow exists in, um, in bigotry and racism. And so now like Black Lives Matter and the struggle, the new struggle for civil rights again, uh, are really struggles against the shadow of a white um, culture, but also of the pretension and the ideals of the culture. So as soon as you say we're a free society, you have a shadow of that society. And then maybe to cap it off, um, psychological growth uh, involves facing and integrating one's shadow. So in order to grow as a person, in order to grow as a community or as a nation, uh, aspects of the shadow have to be faced. That's some of the ideas around it.
2: Thank you, Michael. What is the relationship between mythology and the shadow and how do you believe that mythology can work as a vehicle for us to understand and integrate shadow material?
1: So, um, what is hard to understand and what even psychology can fail to express is expressed in mythology. I mean, in the modern world, m- myth has, has now a shadow existence because people think myths means something false, whereas originally myth meant emergent truth. So the shadow of myth is now what most people know. Um, myth basically means stories, but it al- al- often means creation stories. And so uh, when it comes to creation, um, the shadow of creation is disorder or chaos, And so in myth, you always have the shadow side being shown. You always have uh, the issues of good and bad. Uh, And so myth is uh, like a place where you can see it in a narrative form and you can study it and even enter it in a way that's different from dealing with one's own, the shadow of one's own ego or even the shadow of one's own society because it gets to back to the archetypal shadow i don't know if that helps but myths are of course a series of lies that reveal the truth that's a way to understand myth it's never factually true it's not trying to be it's about the deeper truths and so the all the great old myths have big shadow figures in them and that's the way we can intuit about our own shadow
0: Can you speak a little more about these characters of mythology or these stories of mythology that explore myth very saliently for us? I know you mentioned the devil, but what are like some prominent shadow myths, some prominent shadow myths or prominent shadow characters from mythology? I
1: I guess I don't think of of them so much as shadow myths, Uh, but it's there. Um, So that, um, for instance, go to ancient India. And so what you have at the beginning is, is, let's say, uh, Vishnu, dreams up the world. Vishnu is the god who dreams up the whole thing. And part of the dream of the world that Vishnu has involves the appearance of Brahma. Brahma is like Vishnu dreams it up and Brahma Brahma is like the active creator. Uh, And Brahma arrives carrying the Vedas, the ancient books of knowledge. And he shows it to Vishnu. Vishnu is taken by visions and dreams all the time. He starts reading the Vedas and falls into a visionary state and he drops the Vedas. And where do they fall? They fall into eternal darkness with the shadow of the dream of the world that he just had. And so then Brahma says, you dropped them, you got to go get them. So Vishnu turns himself into a fish and descends into the dark eternal waters from which we get creation came. And when he gets down there, there are the Vedas. But before he can get to the Vedas, there's a demon. And so then Vishnu has to struggle with the demon to get the Vedas, the books of knowledge back. So there's the metaphor right there. There's knowledge hidden inside each person. There's the inner book of wisdom that was the inheritance of each soul coming into the world. And it's ours, it's in us. The thing that people are seeking outside is is hidden within. But in order to get there, we have to descend into the darkness, which is the shadow area. And there will be some kind of a demon that has to be dealt with in order to get to the wisdom that's at the bottom of the darkness. And there's one story from India.
2: Do you believe that rituals um, and rites of passage are born from these mythological stories almost as like an embodiment or an enactment of this uh, kind of wisdom that comes from the psyche? And if you believe that so, are there any particular myths or story that really uh, showcase that sense of ritual and rites of passage for us as a, as a community?
1: So, yes, I think there's a, a dynamic relationship between myth and ritual in, in some societies or cultures, traditional cultures, you can actually see that the ritual is a myth acted out. Sometimes you'll see it that cohesively handled, but mostly the, there's just relationships between the rituals and the myth. Um, but there is a way in which the ritual is the acting of the mythic understanding. And so... Modern people suffer tremendously from a lack of meaningful rituals. The reason people can't come together when they disagree is because there's not a meaningful ritual that says, bring your disagreement, and we're still going to be together. Um, But the one that's really critical is the lack of a rite of passage from childhood into the rest of one's life, the youthful rite of passage. And so to connect it to the subject, um, the rite of passage of youth would involve an exposure to the shadow. It would involve a descent into one's own darkness, and it would involve revealing both the gifts of the person and the wounds of the person, and the wounds are the place where the demonic energies reside. And so when we lack the rite of passage, we lose this kind of conscious interaction with our own shadows and our own wounds. And then what happens in culture is you get, instead of a proper initiation, a revelatory one. I've I've done a lot of work with young people in the streets with gang kids and homeless kids. And what happens when you don't have the initiation process, you get gangs, which are like the shadow of initiation. I don't know if that's helpful. This stuff, because it's archetypal, it's there. It doesn't matter what modern ideas are. It's there. It's part of life just the way night follows day.
0: So, you're mentioning ways in which a, a lack of proper rituals can result in, um, in vice, maybe saying people join gangs, maybe because they're, they're lacking proper tools for shadow integration or proper rituals. Um, what about people who are maybe more well off and aren't in danger of falling into a gang, let's say, but are lacking these rituals? How, how does that? lack of proper ritual or proper shadow integration manifests in wealthy communities, I'd say.
1: Well, in lots of ways, Um, the majority of people that rule the culture right now are from wealthy backgrounds and from uh, prestigious schools, often they are part of the elite and they are acting out the shadow of the elite. It's literally what's happening to the Republican party. I would say it has become like a shadow or uh, aimed party. It's living out the shadow of the culture. Uh, And I'm not trying to get them off the hook by that. I'm just trying to point its relationship to a collective psychological shadow. Uh, But when we were working with uh, doing a lot of work with gangs, back when you could work with people, you know, being physically present, um, we would bring uh, young people from um, wealthy communities into the same retreat with gang members and and what we found was and it's not always the case but it was an interesting thing that the the kids coming from the street and and the the kids coming from the barrio and from the hood are on fire they're in like caught up in a red fog of of fire because they're really abandoned by the culture the kids coming in from the for better lack of a better phrase the white culture with at the educated level, uh, we're in a white fog. They were in a, um, like a, almost a passivity by relationship to the kids coming from the street. And so we started to see there's two different fogs, the fog of intensity and violence and, 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 and heat and the fog of alienation and distance and depression. And so that's one way it can work. It's gonna find its expression Somehow, And then then we found the third, because things usually come in threes, that's what mythology says. And we found the third thing was the black fog, which could occur to either the kids in the hood or the kids from the wealthy neighborhood. And that was the suicidal dark uh, fog that comes in like, like a big black shadow when someone feels they're not worth anything inside.
2: Michael, do you have any thoughts on the loss of mythology in the current day, uh, whether that's through religious traditions or cultural traditions? And, you know, what is the the consequences of us not having that mythological undercurrent to ground us in life?
1: Well, it's, it's one of the biggest undermining influences in modern life, as far as I'm concerned. So... Like we, our podcast is called Living Myth. And, and the point is to say we are living in myth with myth. It doesn't matter if people know it or not. And uh, it's there. And, and so one of the old questions is, which story are we living in? Which myth are we living in? And as far as I can tell, we're living in the myth of apocalypse, where the myth of the end of an era, which is also the beginning of an era, but people don't see that part. And so not knowing that we're living in the end of, a, of an era, that we're living in a myth of collapse and renewal causes many people think that, to think that the world is actually coming to an end. And it causes people to act out the shadow of creation mythology. And what I mean is when you look at the, um, the extremes in the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., that thing, A lot of those people thought they were coming to uh, the beginning of the end of the world. And they're willing to participate in that and do destruction. Destruction is part of the dynamic of the shadow based on not having real mythology and therefore falling into a shadow type of mythology, which has all the shadows issues in it in the sense that destruction and violence are acceptable. And it's exclusive, denying people of color, denying people that aren't part of the, um, the conspiracy. A conspiracy is what happens when you don't have a living myth.
2: I'm curious because you brought up the apocalypse myth. Um, do you also feel that there are threads of like the flood myth that is very prevalent nowadays, more of this uh, all encompassing nature's uh, destructive principle that also kind of wants to come in and wipe the slate clean?
1: I think that nature and culture bo- both fit into the apocalyptic story, so that there is a collapse of culture. And there is also a collapse of a collapse of environmental systems. And what's important to me is in mythology, the world can't come to an end. It ends and begins at the same time the way a forest does. So that gives me a better sense that nature will recover under the right circumstances and culture could do the same. And so but at the same time, yeah, I think flood stories apply. There's never just one story. Where I see the flood story right now is the seemingly unending flood of data, information. Information is a flood. We don't need more information. We need more knowledge. We need more wisdom. We've got the flood of information. It looks like we'll have it for a while. But yeah, I think we are in the flood times. And, And flood times were an end time myth. But if you follow the myths of the flood, it renews again and it renews from small hidden places. So they both apply.
0: So I think I think this is what you're saying if I'm interpreting you correctly, but in some sense we can't live without myth or we cannot live outside of myth in some sense. And are you saying that you think perhaps we've discarded um, evolved functional strong myths and we've only replaced them with crippled, sort of weak dysfunctional myths. Is that kind of the pattern
1: that you're I, speaking I think to? That's, yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. I call it garbage mythology or, or diminished mythology. And so uh, when something falls, so one of the ways I think about modern life is that we've lost the sense of vertical imagination, the verticality of life. With the World Wide Web and all that kind of stuff, we have a lot of horizontal, horizontal connection. But the connection that's essential to the human soul and the human heart and the human mind is vertical imagination. The idea that the, the curse blessing of being human is to have one's feet on the earth and one's imagination in the heavens. And, and the old idea, which was in myth all the time, because in the ancient myths, you'd see certain characters go up to heaven and come down and all that kind of thing. And the idea was that uh, we were vertically connected to the entire cosmos. A human being is a frail, tiny thing, given the size of the cosmos, which is unknown still. Um, But inside the human, humans were the uh, microcosm of the big cosmos macrocosm, humans are the microcosm. So inside the frail human is a soul with the power of imagination, which is big as, as big as the cosmos. The people that want to go to Mars now are, are having a kind of cosmic, I would call it an inflation, not as much as it is an inspiration, but anyway, humans can imagine going to other other galaxies. That's because of this core power of imagination, which makes the tiny, frail, human in some mythological way equal to the cosmos.
0: So people are talking in the chat and they're they're coining some terms like like junk myth as something that's not nutritious. And I'm wondering if you think maybe uh, the nutritious myth that we need or the functional or virtuous myth that we need is one of the past and we need to return to the past for a good myth or do you think it's more that we need to craft a new one? or adapt, maybe one from the past?
1: The answer there is clear. Yes. Yes. So the myths are archetypal. Arche means primordial at the beginning, you know, ancient. Ancient is different than old. Old can wither. Ancient is not withering. So myths are ancient and immediate at the same time. And, um, and so um, the archetypal myth or the, the, the myth that's connected to the ancient is the source of the new. So when people say, uh, talk about the new paradigm, which is a common phrase, paradigm is like the old archetype come back in a new outfit. Just the way the earth returns with daylight every morning, the archetypes keep delivering the essential energies of life. So the nutritious myths are drawing their nutrition from the ancient roots of creation and then delivering them in a fresh way to whomever can tap into them. Um, But what's happened is, people lost the idea just the way people lost the idea of rituals and particularly initiation rites Uh, people lost the idea of being inside a story together and so in a myth you have a territory a big territory and it has room for everybody and in the territory people totally disagree but they know they're in the same territory and what's happened now is everybody's fallen out of story And everybody's fallen into a fractal, fractured world where people have slivers of story and out of desperation claim it's the only story. And we've lost that bigger, integrating, connective story. But the stories don't disappear, just like energy. It doesn't disappear. It's available. And so it's ancient and it's immediate. It works both ways. If I tell an ancient story, everybody finds their place in the story as if we were all ancient. And then people come up with new ways to interpret the story as if we're all also immediate.
2: Michael, have you seen any modern iterations of ancient myths expressing these archetypal structures in a way that you feel really serve the community or guide individuals through initiation and rites of passage?
1: Oh, yeah, I think it actually happens a lot. Strangely, uh, what came to mind when you said that was Black Orpheus, um, which is a movie, it's not contemporary right now. It's a black and white movie. I forget when it was made, but I saw it, you know, back in the 60s, I guess. And it takes the story of Orpheus, who goes to the underworld, and it sets it in Brazil in the time of uh, Mardi Gras, what we call Mardi Gras, in the middle of festival. And the devil as shadow appears and threatens to, is trying to drag the beautiful young woman who's getting ready for the Mardi Gras, he's trying to drag her into the underworld, a la the old, you know, myths of, of, of Greece. And, um, and then the so-called hero is a mu- musician, singer in love with the young woman, and, and, and he has to follow into the underworld to bring back the beautiful person, which is beauty itself. Anyway, that was a movie that a film that so accurately made a new version of an old Greek myth, set it in Brazil, in Mardi Gras, and populated it with people of various colors as you find in Brazil, and it translated in a brilliant way. So that's what came to mind because it fits the shadow story also. But yeah, uh, literature does it, sometimes dance does it, music picks it up sometimes. what I would say is, myth is trying to live into the world through us, and people who are creative and allow themselves to be pulled into big imaginations wind up expressing aspects of myth. Do it's you think to live. that? Good.
0: Sorry. Right. Um, do you think that rituals and rites of passage can be properly? Um, executed over the internet, like in a Zoom room like this? Or is that sort of a fool's errand and these things really need to be in person?
1: I'm going for the yes answer again. Uh, so uh, um, before the solstice, a few months ago in December, we, we do typically mosaic, we do a, a, a public uh, solstice ritual, winter ritual ritual at solstice time Um, and we really wanted to do it, but we couldn't bring people together. It would be like a a death ritual if we did. And so we, after faltering and stumbling, uh, we did it online and we created the shrines that we could use to represent loss and even death and memorial and then a shrine of forgiveness, which we felt was essential in order to get to the central shrine, which was the shrine of the renewal of life as in solstice. We did it online and totally worried about it and somewhat skeptical about it. And I would have to say, based on our experience making it and and doing it and feedback and the fact that thousands of people showed up online, that it actually works. It worked. It's different there's a lot of things you find out that are different about it. Like when, when we do ritual, we're trying to do something that's very ancient, which is to say uh, you don't actually know everything that's going to happen. And things happen that no one foresaw because like in Africa, they call it luring spirit into the moment. And so you have to keep it open, which means it's not all fixed. Most people's experience of ritual is really solemn Protestant um ceremony ritual is open to the unknown that's the whole nature of it and so um that was harder to do online although it did happen so uh yeah so we're actually working on another ritual we're going to do online in may uh as a way of experimenting and i think one of the ideas inside there is that when it comes to essential things like myth and ritual you can't you can't destroy them they can find their ways even into a zoom room
2: Thank you, Michael. So we are going to transition to audience Q&A. So if everyone would like to turn their camera back on, let there be light here at the STOA. And just FYI, we probably won't get through all the questions depending on how many there are and we're not gonna go in order necessarily, but we're going to start off with Duncan. Your question got upvoted a couple of times. Do you wanna unmute yourself? Hi there. Uh, Yeah. So the question that kind of came to my mind is that it seems that in the absence of having myths or rituals, that a lot of the ways people's shadow are coming forward to go fight other people's shadows. And, and then this is creating a cycle of then fighting back against each other's shadows back and forth. And I wonder what are examples of myths or rituals of redemption or Forgiveness or healing that might be useful for these times so that we can see each other's shadow and not uh, Try to destroy it with our own
1: Thank you really good question and implied in the question the way you asked it is the idea that the Shadow has has to be present and manifest in order for the redemption to happen so that if you do a ritual everybody's nice you don't redeem much uh, so like Vishnu who has to go all the way into darkness and face a demon, uh, so all right, so I'm caught between talking about rituals and talking about myths. Um, uh, myths and, and even folk tales and fairy tales have, have a lot to do with redemption. But what they do is imagine redemption as little things, not the big, kind of religious redemption that's at the end of the world. You know, when you go to heaven, you get redeemed. The old idea is redemption is trying to happen today right now, but in smaller ways. Um, So again, I'm caught between the myth and the ritual. I want to say something about what's called ritual of conflict, conflict rituals. It's a completely forgotten idea. And yet it existed in all cultures at one time. That is to say people come together who per se, do not agree and there's an existing conflict and then a ritual is made to contain the conflict and transform it. And we've been working with that for 35 years, not in big public ways because it's very hard to do in big public ways, Uh, but we've done it with different kinds of groups and communities trying to deal with a a conflict. And so a couple of things about conflict uh, ritual. One is everybody has to agree to stay in the room. Everyone has to agree to no physical violence. Um, and then everyone has to agree to speak in an honest way. If you have those three agreements and you have some people that know how to deal with conflict dynamics, you can actually create, by drawing from the ancient and from the immediate, conflicts that resolve. And that resolution of conflict turns into redemption for everybody, even those who weren't that. Um, committed to the conflict. If you're even part of it, the redemption of it in some people redeems it in others. And so that's something I'd love to see to come back into culture.
0: Uh, We're gonna go to Janice, if you'd like to unmute yourself. Hmm.
2: Hi, Michael. Um, So my question is, I wondered if you could speak to failed rites of passage um, as in like, it, would you consider trauma? For example, I think I've heard you say this or read it somewhere that trauma is like a failed rite of passage, but also um, what modern people could do to create some kind of positive initiation rituals rather than to have trauma be sort of our unfortunate go-to.
1: Mm, thank you. So yeah, so the one of the core ideas of uh, rite of passage the way I understand it is that each person is wounded and each person is gifted. And so in the typical youth rite of passage in ideal circumstances, each girl, each boy coming through would go into an intense series of circumstances, which are intended to kind of, temporarily melt the ego, right? The ego or the little self that thinks it knows everything when clearly it doesn't. That can melt under the right circumstances. There's a surrender to the process. In surrendering the ego attitudes and positions, the person begins to become more vulnerable to both things, to the gifts and the wounds. So then at that point you could call the wounds, the trauma that the person went through. So then the rite of passage, in in the psychological understanding, would be a healing process for the trauma, and a revelatory process for the wounds. So the person would come out with more healing, beginning of the healing process that goes on throughout life, and access to the deep self in psychological terms, or to the gifted self. Um, and that would make that's what makes the initiated person. The initiated person is not someone who doesn't have wounds is someone who's aware of their wounds and has gotten some healing and understands that each time we grow we're bringing out more of the gifted part of the self and therefore each time we grow we also have to heal more of the wounded part of the self and so then what happens is the wound over time becomes a womb the wound which is like a tear and things and a a vulnerability becomes the vulnerable place from which the womb of life grows. And so that's what heals the trauma. And that's what I meant when I was speaking about how um, a a traumatic experience is an initiatory event done by the wrong person for the wrong reason at the wrong time. But the problem is it got all the way in there and it's not gonna go away. So then you have to turn it around and turn the wound into a womb. And so in traditional rites of passage everyone would come out with a wound, a physical wound. They'd have a scar or or a tattoo or something that reminds them of what they went through, but also something that says I'm indelibly marked. And that mark can be seen as a wound or can see be seen as a womb because we're intended to keep growing. And the people who are the fine people, I mean, the people who you can count on when when you're in trouble, the people who don't melt under pressure are people who have become alive from the traumatic place. Tricky, but that's my best shot at it.
2: All right, Joe, would you like to unmute and ask your question? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? I'm in bed. So full disclosure here. Um, which question did you have in mind there, Elisa? I think I dropped a few of them in. Yeah, just pick whichever one's most alive for you. Okie dokie. Uh hi, Michael. You're blowing my mind. This wound-to-wound thing is really cool. In fact, I'm going to skip my old questions and go with that a little bit more. Um, can you maybe describe a little deeper? I'll give an example of what that would look like to turn uh, a wound into a womb. Is that like the trauma integrates, or do you just are you just able to tap into it for creativity in a way that doesn't overwhelm you and activate your nervous system? I'd love to hear a bit more about that.
1: Thank yeah, you. yeah, those things for sure. Those things, yes. So, the, the where it starts for me is the idea that, um, the deepest gifts and the deepest wounds reside in the same place so that when one is activated, the other is also activated. Um, And then the next idea for me is that we're never completely healed. The word heal means make whole. And and each, they used to say, each initiation qualifies us for another deeper initiation. And so healing works that way too. And then uh, so then, I don't know. There's lots of ways to go with it, but what comes to my mind right now is the wounded healer. The healers you can really trust are wounded healers. The unwounded person doing healing is not that trustworthy because they don't know your suffering and your wound. And healing happens between the healer and the person who's injured. It's a it's an archetypal dynamic between two poles, and so um so the wounded healer that's the greatest healer because they found the healing in the depth of the wound and therefore it's coming from this deep compassionate I- imaginative inspired place so i don't know if that helps i mean it's a radical idea but it's it's really an old idea and so to make it maybe more immediate uh, i was working once uh with a group of people and and this Uh, one woman got into, you know, she went through a kind of radical collapse. She fell into her wound and her womb was like really vitriolic anger at everyone in her family because uh, she had wound up, she was in her fifties and she had spent her life taking care of her mother as she aged and her father. And then her sister got sick and she was just in a kind of a rage about the loss of her own life. And as we stayed with her you know letting getting that rage out and after that came a whole bunch of sorrow and grief about lost years given away to other people and we went through that and then at the bottom what we she finally said I I said well what, what do you do for a living anyway she said I'm a nurse and it was like it was like when we went down through how people had made her do healing for them She chose healing for herself as a occupation. And when we got all the way down through the wounded areas, we got to the fact that her natural gift was healing and being a nurse. And it just had been mishandled by everybody in her family and herself. And all of a sudden, the very wound that she had been just wailing about became the womb where her archetypal nurse energy was now waiting to be renewed. I don't know if that helps but if you follow the wound you get to the gift
2: beautiful thank you Michael
0: all right let's go to Cody
3: All oh I'm just writing down so many beautiful words that are being said uh, thank you Michael um, I um, you said something earlier with a resounding yes that yes we've got to go to the past for the myth like that's where they are and I, and, I, and I really love that and I've heard you you know, in other podcasts, you know, speak of some of the myths that you've learned in your, um, you know, from different cultures over, over the time. And I agree so much with this, you know, as I've looked into the past, and like, I, you know, I was interested in Buddhism and then I look into it further and deeper and I'm like, Oh, Bond was before then. Oh, Bond has a, a lineage of 18,000 years. And the further we go back, we realize, Oh, we know nothing. We know nothing. There's so much older and so much deeper and wiser. And, um, so my the question is, is, you know, in your, in your, um, you know, explorations and just studying myths. What What is one of those oldest myths that you found that, that, that we need to be remembering, especially now?
1: Thank you. Um, I go to creation myths right now. So just to put psychology and mythology back together, Carl Jung, one of the greatest psychologists certainly of the modern world, uh, shamans and all kinds of people were the great psychologists of the ancient world but uh jung said he was the first one that i found to call apocalypse an archetype he said this is an archetypal dynamic that has happened throughout the ages so that was really smart um and then he he also said that it's returning now and what the archetype is trying to do, the archetypal energy is trying to do is awaken the deep self in each person. And by deep self, he took the idea of the deep self from Asian ancient Asian myths. That's where he got it from. And the idea that there's this deep knowing part of us and that that is the part that is capable of reacting to the world falling apart. And even, From an archetypal point of view, archetypes have aim; they have intention. And from an archetypal point of view, you could say the falling apart of the world is aiming to awakening this deep self that you were calling that ancient, ancient uh, part of us that is our inheritance. So, in the modern world, which is obsessed with progress, people forget that what we're looking for is is on one level behind us on another level deep within us. That's what the ancient is. The, the modern human may not know it, but they are a production of the ancient archetypal energies and every person inherits uh, the, the treasury uh, of the human soul. And so the reason we can find an old myth and be moved by it is because the ancient is in us. Um, and so I go back to creation myths, and and I'll say one more thing about that. A cr- the creation of the world is ongoing. It didn't happen there, and now we're in the aftermath. It's happening all the time. Uh, it happens in nature. You can see it all the time. The big trees fall down, and they begin to rot into the earth, and the new forest comes from the collapse of the previous forest. That's the nature of the world, life, death, renewal. Um, and the creation myths show that the best. The other thing about creation myths is that... Um, When creation happens, the shadow of disorder occurs. So in order to understand the shadow of the disorder of the world right now, the creation myth is helpful. And in order to understand creating the creation myth myth is helpful. Every time someone creates something, they are participating in the creation myth. It's, It's, again, people don't know because people think art is intended for a gallery, which is fine. That way it gets seen. But the making of art is participating in creation in this moment. And so part of living at this time, I'm kind of modifying Jung, would be that we're being called to participate in creation. And each person has a capacity to create something. And every time someone creates something, they're adding presence and meaning to the world. And that's a really important job right now. And it doesn't matter which ancient tradition you want to go to. When you get far back enough, they all work.
2: All right, next question. Tal, do you want to unmute yourself? Uh,
0: Sure. Um, Hey, Michael, thanks so much for sharing so much wisdom. Um, I saw you speak a few years ago and you talked about uh, the genius myth versus the hero's journey. And I was wondering if you could talk more about the shadow of the hero's journey, because I feel like that's such a obsession in our culture, both for personal development and in our pop kind of culture. And uh, yeah, I kind of would love a refresher on that.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, the hero's myth is a great myth, but like you said, it has a shadow. And so Now what's happened is become a diminished but popular idea. And it tends to be over um, involved with dominance and muscularity and power. It tends to be over masculine uh, and it tends to be more too intensely connected to the outer world um, so that you get people wanting to act out the hero or thinking that the uh, intention of the myth is to do something in the outer world so that's one issue i have with it the other side of it is um the shadow of the hero is violence and you see that in video games for instance where you have a real intense flood and flow of violence often in the idea of some heroic battle and so uh it seems to me it has become overblown and misguided um and so I wrote a book called The Genius Myth where I was trying to look I was trying to find a way to talk about something something that was more universal and egalitarian than the hero less masculine less dependent on power and dominance and so I took the idea of genius which is an old Latin word which means the spirit that's already there each person comes into the world with a genius spirit each person therefore has some genius um, and that means any person, girl, boy, anywhere on the spectrum of gender, anywhere uh, on the social spectrums, all that kind of stuff, everyone has some genius. Genius is connected to the gifts of a person and their natural spirit for life. And you don't have to go out and get it and prove something because it comes into the world with everyone. Therefore, we look for it inside. So it works for introverts as well as extroverts. It works. It, I try to find something that's more universal and unique at the same time because each person's genius is different. And then I try to connect that to the problem of the world. There is no heroic move that's gonna save the world. I would say heroics has partly damaged the world now. Um, Heroics is part of the damage in the world. So no single idea, no single system of belief, no one thing is gonna save the world. There's too much damage already but a whole bunch of diverse geniuses waking up and taking on the issue that's closest to them, closest to their heart and soul, that could begin to change things. And so that's my kind of distinction between the two. And then in a more petty way, I took exception uh, to Joseph Campbell saying that the genius myth is the monomyth and all myths come from that. And I thought that was mythologically incorrect. That myth by its nature, like nature itself is diverse. There is no one story. It's a multiplicity as soon as it starts to manifest. So that that's where I was coming from. Like the background of uh, you're, you're really in the waves there is <laughs> compelling. I don't know how you stay afloat.
2: <clears throat> Thanks so much. Appreciate
0: that. Uh, Rhea, do you wanna ask a question?
3: Sure, um, Michael, thanks for being here every time I listen to you I just feel like I'm coming up for a brush of a breath of fresh air and uh, it's always good to hear your wisdom and I was curious um, earlier you said that we now live in a culture that values information um, over wisdom and knowledge and so i'm just curious how do we support the emergence of a culture that values knowledge and wisdom over information and do you believe that if more of us were tuned into that hard space of our own knowledge and wisdom it would help lighten our collective shadow
1: yeah well to the last part yes um wisdom interestingly enough one of the ancient greek words for wisdom would translate as uh, dark knowledge. So wisdom is not simply having the bright light. It's actually knowing both light and darkness. It's knowing both brightness and the shadow of it. So wisdom understands uh, the shadow and, and, and the darkness of things. Um, the problem with wisdom um, is that there is a suffering involved. There's a submission involved and there's a suffering involved. And so it's, it seems untowards or even unpleasant to realize that um, I'm going to have to submit to something and I'm going to have to, in a sense, sacrifice to get wisdom. And so maybe that's the word I'm after. Um, one reason I think... You know, information is easy, it flows. Data is endless. That's what I think has been unleashed in the age of data. Um, Whereas uh, wisdom is something that has to be worked for and I think actually suffered for. Um, So I think it's a challenge to the contemporary world where people don't realize that some of the most important things require sacrifice. Now, sacrifice is different than hurting oneself or it doesn't have to be a big thing. The word sacrifice from the Latin, sacrifice, it means to make it sacred. And so um, there's very little sacred I can find in data. Um, Knowledge begins to be the area where the sacred can show up, Um, but I don't know what else to say about it, except that it requires some kind of self-sacrifice to stay with something long enough that the wisdom of it begins to, uh, to appear. Um, I would also, if I go mythologically with it, there's a lot of stories that would suggest that everybody's born with some wisdom and the trick is awakening to it. Um, I found a tribe in Africa that I could study, you know, through anthropology. I never met them, but I studied aspects of the tribe through anthropology. And I found this amazing little paragraph where someone in the tribe, one of the leaders was saying, when we initiate young people, we're trying to awaken the, the wisdom in them. And when we initiate elders, we're trying to reawaken the dream in them. And that just really struck me. I'll never forget that. So we all have some inner wisdom. And in mythological terms, the obstacles in life are there not to stop us, but to push us into the wisdom we're already carrying. Native Americans called the inner wisdom your natural medicine. Everybody has medicine and wisdom. How do we get there? So rituals was one way to get there. You would, instead of waiting for life to knock you down, you'd set up a ritual where you get buried or you set up a ritual where you struggle, you, you go deeper inside. So the modern world is very rapid, fast and extroverted and aimed at uh, the commodity life, materialism and wisdom is found in the opposite direction in the deep inner reposes of the soul. All right, Michael, we're kind of approaching
0: the end of the hour. Do you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with or any uh,
1: work you're doing soon that you'd like to tell us about? So the uh, reverse order, the work doing soon, we're starting a new series in a couple of weeks uh, called Personal Myth, where I'm going to do two evenings on the story that everybody brings to the world that's trying to live through us out into the world, which is our way of contributing to the world. And then we're gonna do an online workshop going deeper into birth stories and unfinished initiations about personal myth. And so that's, that's what's coming up. Uh, a thought was hanging on after one of the questions. Um, every act, every creative act, everything we call creativity repeats creation. In other words, when a person makes something, it's it's adding something new to the world. To me, that's one of the most powerful things to think about. If a person can find the path of their life, like early on, I got connected to story and, and, and myth, actually, even though I didn't understand it. And so then eventually I learned in my own clumsy way to work with myth, And by working with it, I take something like a creation myth that's thousands of years old, and I actually add something to it that makes it fit back into this world. And that's considered contributing to creation ongoing. But that happens with someone making uh, ceramic uh, pots and things. That happens with anybody doing meaningful work. They are not simply being creative, they're reenacting creation. That's what I mean by living myth. Creation comes present through the creative acts of people. That's maybe the thing that I was hanging over from the earlier question. And we're living in a time when we are being called to act out that which we are capable of contributing to creation. This is the time to live one's calling. This is the time to take the risk of being fully alive in order to add presence to the world that's in such great disorder and struggle.
0: If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org.
2: If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron head to www.goldenshadow.org.
0: Thanks for listening.
2: See you later.